Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello, I'm Rob Lawrence, uh, one of your co-hosts of the EMS Educator Podcast. Unfortunately, Hillary is on other duties as assigned today, so she won't be here. But we have our regular guest host, or as we call her, our ghost, when you combine those two things together, uh, Dr. Maya Dorset. Maya, hi. Hi. Now, this is the holiday season. It's the time for giving and the time for sharing. And so what we're sharing today is an amazing crossover podcast with with NAMSP's Pre-Hospital Emergency Care, PEC podcast. And so also we have another guest host, ghost, Dr. Phil Moy. Phil, how are you? I'm good. How are you, man? Good. This is exciting because we have a great listenership and we're really excited to, uh, albeit a little bit of different, in, when we finally cut this together, we'll have you leading and me leading and me leading and you leading and it'll be all great. But uh, <laughs> this is exciting about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely exciting here. Uh, and uh, I've never actually thought about it, but uh, I guess the name of my podcast is the Peck Podcast. <laughs> so That's because you have really good pecs. Yeah. <laughs> that will definitely make the cut at the end of the podcast here. But yes, we are excited. <laughs> we are excited to work with the EMS Educator uh, podcast here, and it's great to do this uh, together. So to get on with the introduction of the guests, I'm now going to hand it over to uh, Drs. Phil and Maya to, uh, to lead off. I am really excited uh, to have this podcast that I think really bridges things that we discuss on both podcasts which includes literature that's published within PEC, as well as some really important research that was done in the area of EMS education. So we have several wonderful guests with us who are all authors on this study. And I'd like to start this off by having the guests introduce themselves and how they became involved in the study. Dr. March, would you like to start? Sure. Uh, My name is uh, Juan March. I'm chief for the division of EMS. Uh, as well as a professor with the Department of Emergency Medicine at East Carolina University School of Medicine. But I'm also on the board of directors for CAPSI. And uh, that takes us, I think, to Nicole, who is uh, actually one of the uh, staff at CAPSI who's been so helpful on this project. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nicole Camarillo. I am the data coordinator for CAPSI. Um, I just started about two years ago when we actually introduced this study. My name is Steve Taylor. I'm the EMS specialist here at East Carolina Work. Uh, university. I work with Juan uh, here at the Division of EMS. Uh, I've been an EMS educator and administrator for 40 plus years now. And Juan uh, brought the data to me and said, hey, what do you think about this? I said, it looks pretty cool. So let's, uh, let's try to run some numbers. All right. So we are going to be discussing this paper that you published together entitled Effects of COVID-19 on EMS Refresher Course Completion and Delivery. And one of the things that we've seen has united a bunch of the authors, as was started by Dr. March, is that a relationship with CAPSI or the data generated by CAPSI. So just so that all the listeners are on the same page, can you explain who CAPSI is, what do they do, and why all the EMS providers should know about them. So CAPSI is actually the accrediting body for EMS continuing education. And what we do specifically is ensure that our educational um, providers are meeting certain standards to really give our EMS professionals the best quality education that they could possibly get once they reach their EMS education 
or destination. If I could follow up on that, I think a, a lot of EMS professionals and medical directors are all familiar with COAMPs who accredit initial education, but I don't know if as many people are familiar with CAPSI. And again, we're the con ed sort of arm on that. And again, uh, in many ways, we're almost identical to COAMPs, although obviously we're a separate organization that does the continuing education accreditation. This year is its 30th anniversary. It started as CSPEAMS, uh, and CAPSI um, stands for the uh, Commission on Accreditation for Pre-Hospital Continuing Education. And um, it really has evolved over the last 30 years. I think what was really important was July of 2004 when we actually formed an electronic database. So before that, it was all on paper. Uh, we collected it, but in 2004, it went electronic, and that was a huge step for us, and it's really what allowed us um, to collect the data and for Nicole to crunch some of that data for us uh, to basically produce the study that we did. So, guys, uh, thanks again for coming on this podcast here. Can, can we Let's give some context to this study here. So, the name of your study, uh, again, is Effects of COVID-19 on EMS Refresher Course Completion and Delivery. Why don't we explain to our audience what the objective of this study is? Nicole, if you could um, explain sort of, you know, what you do every six months in regards to, um, you know, that data collection and how you share it with the board, because really you're the one who really started this project, whether you realize it or not. (laughs) Yeah. So um, since I got started with CAPSI, uh, every few months, Jay will ask me, Jay is our executive director, and he will ask me to take a look at some particular points of interest to the board of directors or just to our, you know, small group of employees. And so with this study in particular, we really wanted to look at EMS refresher courses and um, the different modalities that they were given in and kind of break down how they were trending over the last several years. So recently I did a different study on where our EMS providers were and I did a map and really highlighted the key areas in the country so we can start trying to focus our more of our efforts in the EMS education community outside of initial education on how these individuals get their continuing education done. So, so Nicole crunches all these numbers and shares it with the board. And um, as uh, that uh, data got sent out to the board of directors, I, I saw this, this graph that just jumped out at me, and I thought, wow. This is like a huge change. And, you know, historically over the last six years, because we literally will get six, 10 years worth of data and the graphs kind of overlap each other. And you can see some minor trends, but this wasn't a minor trend. This was a huge difference. And I realized, hey, you know, this is a study. We need to share this with everybody because clearly things have changed with COVID. And uh, I think that's really um, what started the project was uh, Nicole sharing the data with the board of directors. I think what's really interesting about this is it sort of, shows us how different data can be used because I think that um, accrediting organizations, right, are actually uniquely suited to report on certain kinds of data. So if we think about the data that COAMSBE has about initial education um, and then thinking about, you know, CAPSI is the way that is the accreditation for a lot of the continuing education. So there's a way to capture a lot about what is happening in the continuing education space within EMS. So what I was hoping that we have you here, we have the experts here, um, 
is to explain to us, right, what kind of information is actually captured by CAPSI? Like how rich is this data set to actually describe this space um, before we even dive into the study? Because I think that is not something that's well known. So what we capture, one, from the educational providers themselves, we have them set up their courses, um, what type of CE they're going to be giving, whether it's in-person, online, or a mix of like the F5, the virtual in-person learning. Um, And then on the back end, after they've taught their courses, we have them submit records of every student that's an EMS professional that has completed their course, Um, the date they completed, the number of hours they've completed, their license information, all is really key because we have, you know, the recertification officials that also can look into our database and see that these students have completed and what they've completed and when they've completed in order to gain or to maintain their certification levels. So there's a partnership, right, where that information is directly sent to the National Registry, for example, for people who are trying to maintain their registry certification. So just to reiterate, you essentially have information about every accredited course um, that can be used for recertification taken by every EMS provider, where that is done, when that is done, and what form it is done in for the entire country. As well as the topics as well. So whether it's a topic on Ebola, for example, we can actually do a uh, a search in our database looking for every course that's been taught for the last literally nine, ten years on Ebola or on COVID or on operations um, or on congestive heart failure. So we can actually look at that database and really get specifics on topics as well. So this is sort of like the nemesis of continuing education, sort of. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That is our goal. (laughs) Okay. I think it's worthwhile having a little bit of definitions. Um, And if I'm getting too much into this, you know, Rob and Phil interrupt me, but what are the different types of continuing education? What are those classifications? Because your paper goes into this and talks about the trends, but I think that we have common terminology um, that is useful for both people producing the education, interpreting the paper, as well as, right, every EMS provider know how that information is categorized. So what are the types? So I think the the three main types for the article that we've talked about um, was obviously the F1, which was the original format that we did, which was live courses. Um, the F2 courses are courses that basically are repetitive courses, uh, maybe an ACLS course, for example, um, which we didn't really look at in this study. The other course type format three, it is the online distributive uh, learning. Those are the courses uh, that you take uh, virtually, whether it's at two in the morning or at uh, 7 a.m. again at your convenience. The Other course that we really uh, focused on was the um, F5 courses, which is sort of a newer format, thus why it ended up being format five. And that's the virtual-led instructor training, where it's actually live, but it's virtual. So whether uh, Rob might be teaching this course uh, all the way from maybe London, because he's there that day, or maybe Australia, it's actually the same time in the United States, which might be 2 a.m. in the morning, depending on where he's giving the course originally. So if uh, my son was teaching class, he's uh, in Japan right now, uh, is 14-hour difference. 
So it would be in the middle of the night for us, or in the middle of the night for him, teaching a course uh, in the middle of the day. But again, it's, it's virtual, but it's still live. So we can ask an instructor live a question, and he can respond live and in person, as opposed to two or three days later which, uh, with the virtual course. Uh, what's great is that I love how you talked about um, what piqued your interest into this, uh, Dr. March, was the graph that said, oh, my God, something, some noise is happening here. And that kind of spurred this whole project going on, this manuscript. So can you tell us about this study design of this manuscript or your research project? So uh, basically, Nicole was kind enough uh, to produce all these graphs for us, uh, comparing, uh, looking basically at uh, F1, comparing, uh, I, was, I think, going back to 2016 originally, in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. And I realized, oh, that's a lot of information. Maybe we should just go back two years, 2018, 2019, and 2020. You can see the trend, uh, you know, some slight trends for the F1 courses, the F3 courses, and the F5 courses. I think there was two things that really caught my eye when looking at the data. You know, when you look at it individually, clearly over time we're seeing, over time we're seeing less and less of the live courses, um, you know, going from roughly, you know, 3.8% down to 1% of the total courses. They're clearly dying out. And I, I think um, it was shocking to see literally more than double the increase in the online courses during COVID. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, and, and we can talk about in, the, in a minute. But I think what really caught my eye was the one graph, a uh, figure two, where you really compared the F1 to the F3, and you realize live courses are almost totally gone. They've disappeared in comparison. And, and that already was occurring before COVID. I think COVID, I, I hate to say put the nail in the coffin, but I think kind of put the nail in the coffin uh, and a lot of different reasons for it. Um, and I think it goes back to EMS um, and the workforce and the fact that we work the crazy hours that we do. Um, and it's so nice to be able to take a class at two in the morning because I've been doing a bunch of night shifts in a row and I'm still not on a day schedule. And there's no way I could go to a live class right now because it would be dangerous for me to drive. But I can at my leisure take a course at two in the morning. Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting observation because there's, I think, two big conclusions when I looked at this paper that I drew. The first was, right, as we maybe expected, COVID seriously drove the change to a distributive learning model, which at the initial time, right, from a national registry perspective was like a temporary that you could make things distributive. So I think that's the other big change that happened is that you didn't actually have a live requirement anymore. And that has now been made permanent. But I think one of the things that I didn't expect was how little was being done live even before COVID. To me, that was actually one of the most surprising things that I looked at, like what proportion, even in, in 2018, 2019, I think we had attributed well, not we, the I, I had attributed, right, that so much of this was now distributive education as a result of COVID. But almost when you look back on it, the trend was, as you said, almost like pre-existing. And there was a huge amount of continuing education that was already being done in this asynchronous distributive model. And as you said, there was a, there was a massive leap in it really, I think, driven by COVID, hence the title of your paper. Um, but to me, I think that it indicated to me that this is not, this was not novel or new. Um, this was sort of an extension of a trend that had already been happening. Um, sort of like we saw just sort of, I think trends that were happening everywhere were sort of accelerated um, by the by the pandemic. And I think the same is true in continuing education. The other part of it was, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious and, and 
I'm sure Nicole will be collecting our data shortly for uh, <laughs> uh, 2022. You know, is is the online because there was literally a a hundred percent increase almost in the number of online distributive learning um, that occurred. And it clearly wasn't because of the live courses or the VILT. It was sort of this huge jump. Um, and if you look at when the jumps occurred, you know, they, they were typically in the uh, June era and then September, October, November. And, you know, I kind of joked, uh, I know when I uh, uh, lectured on this topic uh, at EMS Expo uh, this uh, in October, I was like, you know, why did this jump occur? And I have a theory. Um, it's not been proven. Um, but so what, what were people doing in June? And actually, if you look at the data, there was a, a little jump in June, uh, May, June of 2020 in regards to cases of COVID. And I don't know about you folks, but when I got my COVID, <laughs> few days, honestly, I kind of felt miserable. I had the flu. I had some fever and stuff. But by day three or four, I was kind of like, I'm bored. I'm quarantined. What do I do? And the answer is, well, there's Netflix. And so after two days of Netflix, you know, um, I was on day like five now. I'm like, all right, I've got, now gone through Hulu. But, but please tell me you, you started your CE after you completed Tiger King. <laughs> so, of course, I did that as well. That was part of that. So Absolutely. It was like obligatory, right? It was. But by day seven, I'm like, well, I've still got three more days of quarantine. What do I do now? And I was like, well, you know, I've got enough con ed, so well, I might as well do research. So that's what I did. But I really think a lot of the EMS folks did con ed while they had these COVID, um, you know, uh, spikes. And, and it kind of fits if you look at the COVID spike in September, October, November, especially October, November, there was these huge spikes in COVID. And I really feel like some folks were quarantined and had nothing better to do after watching, you know, Tiger King and, and go ahead and, and might as well knock out some C while I'm at it. It's like making the most of quarantine. <laughs> Again, there's no research behind that. Just a theory. Just a theory. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting because uh, right now we're hypothesizing that you know COVID nineteen has driven the indirect learning tremendously. Um, probably future study by you, Nicole, Stephen, and uh, Dr. March here is you know is this just a, a blip or will the pendulum swing back to live in person or will there be kind of a balance out of this um, this kind of pendulum swing that we're seeing here? So it'll be kind of interesting to see. I'm just going to cut back in now, and we're going to take a second to have a message from our sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor, and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver, saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. As always, thank you, Christine. And uh, if you haven't caught the podcast that she just did from the Texas EMS conference, uh, we'll put that in our show notes. So you can also listen to Christine talking 
in a great deal more detail about the amazing 501c3 charity that uh, is our sponsor. So one of the things I wanted to get to before we uh, swing a little bit is um, for live course completions, when I think about the CAPC data set, I'm wondering if the CAPC data set might underestimate live course completions. So for example, when we have in-person trainings, people get awarded CE, but it doesn't go through the CAPC process. And so when I, that's the one sort of thought I had when I went through this, because I feel like it's probably more than 1% of continuing education or what what's the total percent, the very low percentage it was of continuing education is being done in live, but it doesn't actually go through a CAPSI accreditation process, which I think is mostly, you know, like conferences, other things, which clearly it would have gone down. That's a great question. And I think this goes back to our, I think the next research study, which I've already uh, sent to uh, Jay Scott, who's the executive director in terms of crunching the data and crunching all the data is, you know, when did, was there a flip? Because originally, you know, back in the day in 2004, there were very few live uh, online distributive learning. It was mainly just live. And I'm kind of curious to see what those total numbers were and, and when the flip occurred and how long it took for the distributive learning online courses to take off. And I think it was a complex uh, process. I've been on the board of directors for CAPC over those 30 years on and off uh, for about 25 of them. And I've seen the evolution at CAPC. And I think what happened was once we made the decision way back when um, to approve online courses, those distributive courses, when we made the requirements, initially everybody was kind of, well, how good are are our requirements? And, and we've done, we actually have a secret shopper who goes in and and, and tests some of these online programs to make sure that they're high quality, that their name will not be mentioned. It's top secret who the secret shopper is, but um, that's his job. He goes in and and we actually have a second, second secret shopper as well. But the goal was really to prove that the courses that we accredited really were of high quality and, and meeting the standard. And over time, I think the folks at national registry realized that we were serious about this and started adopting, well, you can have a percentage of the classes you take on uh, continuing education be online. And then when COVID hit, it was kind of like, well, I guess everything, we, we need to open it up and, and be a little more flexible with COVID and allow everything to be online. And and now today it's kind of like, well, you know, they, they've shown that they can accredit and that clearly it can be done. And so now at this point, it's no longer this, you know, probationary uh, period. It's we've opened up online totally, and so it, it really has been a change over the last uh, 25 years from being all live to now being primarily online, at least for ConEd. So I would be remiss um, since EMS Educator is produced by Prodigy not to talk about sort of one of the projects that we did, which is Refresh, um, which was a project that was done to help right people do their recertification online by getting input and content from national experts who all volunteered their time to do that. So Rob, you happen to be our number cruncher for Refresh, if I'm not mistaken. It would be remiss of me if we didn't just go back a little bit into, yes, Tiger King had just been uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, I I have to credit Peter Antevi and uh, Tom Boothelay, who came to us and said, look, listen, we're doing some online education for a limited number of people. And Peter came back and went, hang on a second, this just needs to be exploded across the country because of the pandemic, because we're in lockdown, because we need to achieve these things. And then how do we move and shake that? Well, of course, we called Pepe, 
and Pepe called people, and people then responded. And before you know it, and, and of course, this is how you get things done, right? So just uh, call Paul. Uh, better call Paul, even. Um, and so before you know it, we had 30 of the country's finest educators uh, giving their time for free. And, of course, all we did at Prodigy, well, all we did, but all we did was actually we, we collated that, we put it out, we worked with the – we worked to get the CE and – Yeah, they capped the accreditation. To be capped the accredited, of course, and 40,000 uh, medics from around the planet, actually, because, of course, you don't have to just be U.S.-based to do this. We had people in Kuwait who were working on the military contracts, etc., um, and other folk that were just interested in the education came along, and uh, I think we graduated or, or passed through a total of 30,000 people got through their accreditation that year. Um, clearly, there was a drop-off. And to be true to those folk that gave their time for free, we didn't monetize that. We actually sunset it at the end of the time, and those are now in, in the archive. And we've actually resurfaced one, actually, and that was Joelle's session on RSV because it's very timely, very topical, and we've put that out. So, yes, so it was an, ex an altruistic exercise by our most amazing speakers. Um, Tom, Peter, and Paul were instrumental in getting everyone together. And it got us over that hump. And, uh, you know, we were so proud and delighted to do that. So numbers wise, what was the the border of the numbers for people who went through Refresh? So would that data have been included in this study? So uh, since, it's, since it's CAPSI accredited, the answer is obviously they were. And if you look, there was a, about 70,000 um, courses increase from what, 2019 to 2020 in regards to uh, online distributive learning. And you wonder how much uh, of that was actually just Prodigy in, in, their, um, in their refresher course, which, uh, as you kind of alluded to, Rob, that it really did just take off because here were some top uh, speakers. And you talk about, uh, you know, the three key people that put it together. It almost sounds like a rock group. And the price was right. The, the, the price was right. And, of course, Dr. Pepe is also a rock group uh, <laughs> MD supporter and a follower. So totally, totally appropriate to make that reference. I'd like to head a little bit into some discussion, which we've been doing sort of all along. But what would be the key takeaway? I think what, what are the results important? Juan, you in particular, you said you saw this trend and you said it is important to share this with the greater community, right? That's why we need to actually go through this work. Why is that? So I think, you know, over the past 30 years uh, for CAPSI, we clearly have seen this pendulum swing from all live to almost all online distributive learning. And, and one of my concerns is I think it's great that we've gone online, but at the same time, I'm concerned, are we missing something? Because clearly what we do in EMS, a lot of it really is hands-on. So the knowledge between your ears can be online, but the knowledge with your hands and um, eye-hand coordination is something you need to have live and in person. And so whether it's the skills, um, it, that component really needs to be hands-on. And I don't know, Nicole or, or Steve or, or, or anybody want to comment on that? Yeah, so... I was very intrigued by the study for another aspect. We started doing uh, our uh, CE in-house, uh, pretty much like Maya talked about. Uh, it wasn't CAPC approved, but we started from an economic standpoint doing uh, distributing our Con Ed uh, online back with when we had Windows 95. So back in the late 90s, 
uh, we were distributing that to our employees and requiring them to complete that content for a fiscal uh, reason, and we could control the content. But we also learned too that as we were as as the content's being delivered, um, employees are able to sit in the back of the room with their now back then cell phones and play pong or whatever the games were back in those days. Cause I'm a big phone game player and they could really not be too engaged. Right. But when we um, produce the online content, it required them to engage with the computer material and at least gain some effective learning or, or refresher out of that, uh, depending on whether it was new or, or just a review material. But um, some of the things that uh, Juan and I've talked about is the effective learning piece is, is usually fairly decent. We've kind of shown that. Uh, but there's some concern about applying that uh, knowledge base into our critical thinking skills. And as we go through and as as having taught a, a bunch of these programs, they're, they're very linear in education piece um, for people to get the knowledge base. But then we have to really branch out and, uh, and make them dynamic so that we can develop critical thinking skills. And then eventually after that, then we transfer those dynamic skills into the actual psychomotor skills and performing the procedures that we need them to do at the right time and the right on the right patient. So for me, um, I think it's, I think it's a great medium. I was, I was very happy when I saw Tom's email come out. Um, and then I saw the lineup and I was like, well, I agree with Juan. I mean, this is like fabulous. Uh, I wish we could do content like this all the time with not only refresher material, but the new updated, what, what are the new things? What's the new literature out there and, and kind of, um, providing more robust, up-to-date stuff for our, uh, for our professionals. But uh, the psychomotor piece, I think, still um, has to be brought back in somewhere, um, somehow. I think a good example of that, Steve, and, and I know you could talk for an entire hour, actually, 90 minutes, um, but we don't have that much time. Um, if you look at you know, the addition of uh, a CPR puck and CPR feedback, live feedback, um, Obviously, you were instrumental here in Pitt County, um, as well as Bobby Portella, the EMS medical director here, uh, part of the division of EMS here at East Carolina University in regards to improving cardiac arrest survival uh, and bringing our you know, ROSC rates to the 50th percentile and, and literally in one, uh, one year actually getting our uh, neurologically intact survival up to literally 18%, which is just huge. And, and that wasn't because of online education. It was because you actually realized it wasn't enough to just, you know, give a class online. We actually had to bring folks in and do in-person training and working as a team and realizing, hey, we need to maximize use of that feedback live and in person. I think you both have really hit the nail on the head um, where we think about really what is the role of distributive education. And that was actually the the topic of the last podcast we we did um, with somebody like Megan Corey, who is going to be very sort of honest about what the, the EMS education literature says about the value of different types of delivery methods. I think the value of online education is the access to expertise, right? It's the access to up-to-date information. And as the National Registry has publicized, right, they're going to be incorporating things like evidence-based guidelines 
into the continuing education requirements. And so how do we get everybody everywhere sort of access to that level of expertise to update their knowledge according to evidence-based medicine? But right, but cognitive knowledge is like it's the things that you need to know to be able to apply it. And so even with getting away with the distributive education limits, if our goal is continued competency or mastery or advanced competency, whatever you want to call it, right, where we are, there's always going to be have to be some opportunity to um, evaluate competency as well as the opportunity to apply that. Um, I don't think we know exactly what the right answers are because I don't think you need to come in and run the same scenario of the thing that you've already taken care of, that you've proven that you're doing a good job on. Um, But there are certainly things that you almost never do that you need to come in and practice. And there are certain things where we have a dramatic change in how we care for that patient that we need to actually come in and get feedback on. And so far as like, what is the role of a sort of the, the national, right? Like the national platform to say about these are sort of your recertification requirements. How do we actually keep sort of that minimum floor of knowledge moving forward with evidence? Um, I think this trend actually makes a lot of sense um, because we don't necessarily expect a pocket of expertise everywhere, but we should expect access to expertise everywhere so that people have, have the sort of the same floor on which to apply. You talked about evidence-based guidelines, uh, and I think that's really important. The Pre-Hospital Guidelines Consortium, uh, CAPSI, uh, has representation as, as over 20, I think, different organizations do. And, you know, one of their goals really is to come up with a process together with uh, all these organizations, including National Registry, to assure that um, we really do have the latest evidence-based guidelines and are following them, not just in North Carolina, not just in Massachusetts, uh, not just in Connecticut, not just in California or Oregon, but across the entire United States. And the only way to do that really, I think, is um, to make sure we identify what that evidence-based medicine is and what those guidelines are, and then to deliver that education. And, and what better way to do that but to do that online? But I think you bring up the point is, and I think Steve did, it's great that we've done the education. How long does it take to get incorporated? And not just uh, – on a intellectual basis, but also on a hands-on basis, deliver it to our patients. Uh, having gone to several board of directors meeting at National Registry, one of the things that's a little bit distressing is it often takes about four years from the time there's a new update with the American Heart Association until the students actually answer the correct the answer uh, the question correctly, and so. Again, is it to make it to the textbook? And the answer is the textbook's four or five years old, and, and that's part of our problem, uh, trying to be up to date, not just four or five years uh, with the latest evidence-based guidelines, but to actually have it up to date, hopefully within 12 months or less. And I think that's the hard part. And what's I think really neat is um, looking at CAPC's data, one of the things that we can look at is when did we start actually doing classes on COVID? Online. When did we start doing Ebola classes and how that compared to when we had the first cases here in the U.S.? Um, the first cases in California of COVID were in January, and the big first you know wave was really hit us probably starting in late March and April. And so when did those courses occur? When did EMS have access to those courses? When were they developed? And those are all sorts of questions that I think from a national standpoint – Potentially, we at have, CAPSI have that data and I think need to look at more carefully to see that time lag and how long it takes for uh, it to get distributed. I think the, the hard part with that, right, is 
how do we capture just-in-time education when cha- things change? Because I think there was a lot of education. It was happening just in time, right? Because every information we had changed <laughs> every single day. Um, it was like it was like back and forth. What's true today? Um, education, but I think what CAPSI does capture is the solidification of knowledge in a way that was distributed because nobody went through and made a CAPSI accredited course until they actually had something evidence-based to say. I don't think, I don't know that for a fact, but I, I would think so. We got past like the, the daily briefings of whatever we thought was right on that given day um, to something that was more, more solidified. Yeah. So um, this, like any good manuscript, uh, this manuscript kind of lends itself to, further questions or spurns other ideas. Now, this manuscript did show that distributive learning is obviously increasing, especially over the past three years that you analyzed. But looking at this, where do we go from here? What is the future directions after this manuscript that you'd like to see this foundational research knowledge that you put out there go and other people to take off with or you guys to take off with and take the baton and run with? Well, at this point, I believe Nicole might correct me, but I think we've got 16 million, more than 16 million records uh, in our database. I think uh, it's more like 18 million. <laughs> so I'm always behind. Yeah, yeah. Didn't include this year's data. It's yeah. like the it's like the guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, there's so many questions, and I'll pick on spinal immobilization as one good example. Um, here's a, a area that we have some evidence based guidelines and recommendations on. Um, and this goes back to ESO data. And so when did the education occur? When did the actual, you know, individual patient care change based on that education? So again, those are two just uh, examples of, of what we need to look at. Um, when did online education and distributive learning really take off? Uh, it wasn't in 2004. Was it 2005? Was it 2010? How did it relate to the National Registry and they're opening up to uh, online distributive learning. Uh, again, looking at Ebola and, and COVID, for example, when did that education occur compared to the first case of Ebola in the U.S.? Um, you know, when, when it was happening in Africa, you know, probably not many people were very interested in, in learning about it, and there probably weren't many courses on it. But, you know, when the first case occurred in the U.S., I think it piqued everybody's interest, and all of a sudden, I bet there was a lot of education on it. Not as much as I expected, but it's definitely there. So, Again, there's just so many questions. And when you have 18 million records, that's a lot to look at. And, you know, Nicole commented earlier about, you know, where those courses are occurring. And I think that's important as well. I think one of the the additional things that COVID kind of illustrated, at least to me, um, having, having been in EMS since 1980, is that um, trying to get the best practice out for education. And as, as Dr. March spoke about, it sometimes takes three, four years for that to get out and for people to start using it. But uh, one of the things that we've, we still notice is that as the education is slow to come out, but also how long does it take our best practice learning models that, that some of our students have attended? How, does, how long does it take to actually get out to become a patient care delivery model so they're actually using that in their actual practice and, and performing best evidence-based practice out in on their patients. I think the really great part, too, is, you know, if um, you look at the CAPSI staff, and Nicole's obviously one of our uh, critical members in, in regards to uh, making us a success, um, 
but it's also the board of directors for CAPSI uh, that uh, constantly come up with ideas and concepts and thoughts. And, and, and so uh, we keep moving forward. Uh, you know, uh, uh, if you look at the original logo for C-Speams, uh, when we first started, uh, it was basically uh, arrows moving forward. And I think um, uh, now, obviously, it's a, uh, um, you know, uh, that flame, because uh, obviously we keep the light and uh, um, improving that education. But again, it's constantly moving. It's a moving target. And, and whether it's a virtual uh, instructor-led training or whether it's, uh, core, you know, classes in terms of um, uh, scenarios and uh, games, as it were, I think education will continue to grow. I, I had some takeaways and things I found surprising when I read this paper. Um, but I think my big takeaway is that there are so many amazing data sets in EMS to answer important questions. There's Nemesis, there's the National Registry data, there's the COAMPS data, and I've added to that like this huge data set from CAPSI, which actually lets us think about answering these important questions of how does our continuing education methods um, impact clinical care when we think about how do we combine that with the other data sets. Um, and I think that's a very exciting future um, so that we can ask when we're doing something, are we actually, are we doing what we should be doing to improve patient care in the continuing education space? Um, and it's complex and there's always going to be caveats, but I think that's really uh, exciting. I, I'm going to admit that I had no idea how much data was captured by CAPSI until I read this paper, um, which was the first time I really thought about how much information is captured about this particular space. Guys, uh, final thoughts. Uh, we have a huge listenership with both our podcasts combined here. So final thoughts on uh, this manuscript or what you've discovered during the process of finding out what you found out in this manuscript. I think in summary, um, continuing education, like initial training, uh, as medicine as a whole, it's constantly changing. We need as uh, EMS professionals to realize that and to uh, basically realize that because it's constantly changing, we need to realize the importance of evidence-based medicine, I think, uh, and how it affects both our con ed and our initial training as well. I, I think one of the things that, to me that this doesn't answer, um, although I might be able to make some suggestions, but is this, is this the format in which our EMS providers want to receive their continuing education? Um, is this, you know, is this their, is, were they forced to do this because of COVID or is this a medium in which they prefer? Is it easy um, to access? I can do it whenever within my off time, whether I'm wide awake at three in the morning. Um, is this, is this really a, a sample or a, a mechanism in which they prefer? And then, uh, and then, you know, what's the, what are the outcomes of the education? Are we actually, as we produce the video or um, distance learning modules, are, how does that relate out? Are we getting the information and is it getting applied correctly? I think those are the things that are definitely a, the big database doesn't answer that um, I think that's a new question. So for me, I'm not an EMS professional in any sense of the word, um, but I do think it's important for our EMS professionals to maybe not look at the same courses that they've done before, um, to try and find something that they don't know or that they want to learn and to focus on that 
because like you said earlier, there's going to be scenarios that you've never been presented with and how do you handle it if you've never even looked at that topic. So um, that's something I try to do every day in my life. Um, I'm currently in a bachelor's program, so I'm trying to learn more about things every day. So I think it's important to always look for something that you don't know and try to understand it a little bit better. Great words of advice. You know, I think in summary, uh, there's no question that like uh, the rest of medicine, EMS is constantly changing. And I think continuing education uh, is going to meet that need in regards to uh, where it is headed in the future. Myra and Bill, if, if I can just kind of zero back in on the data I did declare at the start, it was my favorite four-letter word, right? But, uh, of course, the, the collection and the collation of information and turning it into an intelligence product is something that EMS has been particularly bad at for the pre-hospital environment, and things are on the up. I think there's a massive uptick in research and, of course, in the presentation of this information as an intelligence product that we can act on. And so I think that the work that uh, we've talked about here will help. Um, as you know, Maya, the other half of my day job is uh, in the sort of political legislating realm and trying to influence decisions that help our industry and therefore aren't getting armed with the correct timely information is key and whether it's the amount of and level of training that's going on or you mentioned actually let's just talk about nemesis for a second you named up nemesis a couple of times in the podcast and of course only this week did they publish their non-fatal opioid database the white house actually sponsored nemesis to do that and so we're going to have yet more data on something that we in the pre-hospital environment are at the coalface the sharp end of and with and so I think that's a, another a great use of the information that we generate from the patient contacts that we have. And so data is going to be my final thought, Maya and Phil. Hey, thank you so much for inviting us. Um, I really do appreciate uh, being able to share uh, this article on a podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time and your willingness to discuss it. Guys, uh, that was uh, an amazing discussion, uh, Maya and Phil. And uh, just so we know, Phil, how can we follow on the other channel, both NAMSP and the podcast? Give us the contact details. Yeah, so to listen to the Pre-Hospital Emergency Care podcast, we are actually dedicated to the manuscripts that are published in our Pre-Hospital Emergency Care journal. All you have to do in your podcast app is search Pre-Hospital Emergency Care, and it'll pop up in there. We've got about 10 years worth of pre-hospital education uh, podcasts episode. So again, just search us and your local podcast app in Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, just search pre-hospital emergency care podcast and you'll find our podcast. And you rattled that list off like you've memorized it. I have to refer to a piece of paper right now. So <laughs> don't forget everybody, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Amazon Music. And as Phil just said, if you're enjoying the show or the shows, please take a second to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. Finally, before I go, don't forget that we're all going to be in Florida next month at the NAMSP conference, which takes place from the 23rd to the 28th at the JW Marriott in Tampa. I'm also delighted to say that we're going to have at our booth, the Prodigy booth in the hall, uh, Kevin Hazard and John Moon from American Sirens. And uh, they're going to be joining us. Um, this could be a grand reveal. I don't know. But uh, stop by the booth and see us and see the team from American Sirens, Kevin and John. We're really excited about that, aren't we, Maya? I am so excited. It's insane. <laughs> Good. Well, we'll see you all next month 
or if you're listening to this uh, in in a year's time, because Phil's got 10 years worth of this. Uh, we were there eight years ago. But anyway, here we are now. So that's been the EMS Educator Podcast. Thank you to everybody. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>